please tell me you've watched Succession at least. Are you caught up on Succession or just you know? Have any... I, I watched zero episodes of Succession. You know, we'll always have The Simpsons from the nineties. <laughs> That's right. That's right. I'm, I'm, I'm clearly 20 years behind. Like the wire was 20 years ago. I've got 20 years of TV to catch up on. But he, okay. So here's what I don't understand. You recommended the wire podcast to me. Yes. Because I'm so out of date. I have been watching the wire and the pre-roll on HBO max is listen to our 20 year old, our podcast now that this thing that you're watching for the first time, they don't know that is 20 years old. The podcast is outstanding. It's so, <laughs> it's so good. good. It's so it good. is so good. Oh my, it's exceptional. It's really, really good. I mean, I believe this when I, when we watched it at the time, I'm like, I have just watched the first television that I can say unequivocally will be watched in 200 years. But like this, we will view the wire. The wire will be viewed the way we still read Dickens. I'm serious that it's like, it, 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 I mean, it's very Dickensian in many yeah. ways, right? I mean, it's like Dickens is in many ways, like the, the, the greatest analog for it. Um, it's so outstanding. And the podcast is so good. And, and I have to tell so you, good. Succession is outstanding. The Succession podcast, also very good. I, I love what HBO is doing with these podcasts. I just I'll get there in twenty years. Like no spoilers, okay? Twenty forty three is right around the corner. Yeah. All right. How do we get folks up on stage here? Because we got uh, we, I, we we got some. You just right click them. Is is Steve out here in the audience? The Ashley's there. So let's get let's get Ashley up here. Can, All right, Ashley, you have been invited to speak. It, it, I'm here. All hey, right, and, and, and I saw Adam here. We got to get we got to get Adam Jacobs here as well, because Adam's going to have some opinion on this one. Yeah, I saw Adam was here too, and I was excited to be able to do our back and forth in voice. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. No, this is uh, okay. This is, is a, a hot topic. And so just first of all, uh, and I'm not sure if you were getting this as well, but uh, people were asking me to take this one on. They're like, hey, can you talk about the Rust trademark fracas? And I'm like, is this who we are? Is this we're, are we like the fracas commentators? Is this what people look to us when there is some, some that's a farrago? Question. That's an actual question you're asking? Yes, um, you are 100% that person. I, you didn't get me a chance to answer your question and saying i'm afraid of the answer adam i didn't want to know the answer and now i do know the answer and i can't unknow but that's who we are <laughs> all right well you know what we, we just need to embrace this and Brian, actually, it's most- better you than the register okay <laughs> i i that is true with an asterisk i thought that their head their headline actually their subhead was very funny so they're actually the making sub was great Ashley's making reference to a register article that appeared today uh, describing the oh, the Rust Foundation having realized that maybe maybe got a little aggressive on the trademark policy, um, and the register said that perhaps they should have wrapped the new trademark policy in unsafe. Oh, yeah. Oh. <laughs> I thought that was pretty good. I thought that was, I thought, and I thought the story was good. I thought I, actually, I thought the story was good. And what I was going to say, I, I'm kind of biased because I did take the call from them, which was kind of funny, but. Uh... The last time I spoke to this reporter was actually when there was a fork in Node, so we got to reminisce I, I, about that. I, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, well, no, we are. Well, okay. So actually, and that is a a pin because I do think that I I almost struggle to think of a community that hasn't had 
an issue that looks like this, that this is something that is very all too common. And it's like, it doesn't need to be this way. I mean, I think that this, this was a, and I think I'm glad to see the Rust Foundation kind of backtrack here because this is an unnecessary mess. But I mean, actually, as I was thinking about it, I mean, obviously I, so we had the, uh, no, the Node.js fork, uh, io.js. And do you remember Joe.ns? Am I making that one up? I feel like there's another fork at some point. Oh my gosh, I have, have not one. heard of that one, but I wouldn't be no, surprised. Oh, yeah. I exactly. mean... It, <laughs> and, but then also digging, uh, going back into certainly to our own history with respect to Sun, there were a bunch of these. And actually, when the, Adam, do you remember when the lawyer said that you couldn't have Java on a slide anymore? Because do you remember this where the Java Sun did yes. not have a trademark on Java, so you couldn't say Java because that wasn't something that Sun could defend because it's use it or lose it, and they had lost it. So they needed you to say Java technology whenever you wanted to say Java. Do you remember this era? I I was giving some presentation at Java One, kind of submitted the slides, and then got them back. With every, you know, the search and replace of Java to like Java technology everywhere, turning it into just gibberish. Absolutely. I remember that. Gibberish and total mistake. I made the, I mean, we made the very conscious decision um, to, for a bunch of our core technologies to, to Sun ask, like, should we trademark this? And I'm like, no, do not want this trademarked because it's not, um, I don't think there's much to defend here. And I think that there's a lot of value in having this be freely available for other people to derive there and zfs it's do you remember the zfs that you also can't trademark it's a, it's a three-letter acronyms are generally very hard to trademark mm-hmm. and so they had it they had a different name wasn't it yes. Dyn- okay it, I remember was, it was dynafs d-y-n capital d it was capital not f dream. capital s no doesn't no. that feel like <laughs> a dream now, we have this it's same dream absolutely same dream so they wanted to rename zfs DynFS, D-Y-N-F-S, not to be confused with dying FS or whatever. I mean, it's like, what? So this has been a long-standing issue about what we call things. And Ashley, do you want to just maybe walk us through what we saw happen? This I mean, The policy was announced on April 6th, I think. What was the policy and uh, what was the policy kind of, the trademark policy prior to this? And then why were, why were so many people focused on this change in the trademark policy from the Rust Foundation? This is a massive question, Brian, but sure, I'll, so I'll do my best. I would also share, just for anybody who's interested in open source governance, like you should be trolling the minutes of the foundation because they have been talking about trademark for a second. Mm, <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, I don't know. There's always some really interesting little tidbits in there, and no one ever reads them, but they are they're fun to dig through after like a big kerfuffle like this. So uh, it's worth a lot of people got really upset about this whole thing because they didn't even realize that Rust was trademarked in the first place, um, which is it's kind of funny. But uh, Mozilla has always had trademarks on their technologies and reasonably strong policies around them. The hmm. policy that existed when I, I mean, we could dig into Ice Weasel, which is something that if Steve were here, maybe I would let him do. You, you don't want to get into it. There's a lot about like Linux distros and things that start making what you call stuff really complicated. Yeah. Um, but the previous Rust trademark policy 
was mostly you can use the word rust and the crates.io and cargo, which are also trademarks for anyone who's listening might not think they are. Um, but the main thing is that you can't look like you are being officially endorsed. <laughs> and, right. and that yeah. is the, the, the primary rule. Now, there, even the policy itself called out that this is incredibly subjective. Um, and like people are just going to decide and like maybe one day it will be and maybe one day it won't be. And so one of the biggest problems for the Rust core team as Mozilla kind of turned the dial down on how many people they were employing to work on Rust versus kind of kind of becoming its own thing was we didn't have any dedicated legal support. Um, and so as a result, the community team was often receiving these questions of like, can we use the trademark for this? Can we use the trademark for that? And it's really hard to answer given the current policy. <laughs> right. Um, and so there was so really th ambiguity there in the policy, in other words. Like there was yeah. actually there, were, there was a real problem to actually be solved here. Yeah, there were a couple of spots where the core team, both when I was on it and when I was not on it, flexed uh, the power. And one of the big ones was when they wouldn't let what is now known as Rust Fest be called Rust Conf. Um, and so that was one of the biggest moves, and a lot of people don't remember it because it was like in 2012 or something. Um, yeah, but uh, yeah, it it made a lot of people at the moment very very upset, and they had to you know come up with a different name. Um, but yeah, the big it's reason they wanted... want Rust Comf because they felt Rust Comf is too associated with Rust Rust Fest. I don't know. Sounds loosey goosey. Just yeah, exactly like. like, like this Sounds like mayhem. I don't know. That's what, I'll just spill that what, into the street. What a weird distinction. Yeah. So, I mean, here's the thing that I think is really important, and I'm zooming out of your question, which was a very, very huge one, which is like the way it has historically been used in Rust in the past, and this is like a massive, like my personal experience, opinion, perspective, parentheses here, was the Rust project would carve out places where they wanted people to cooperate and not compete. Uh, and they would be a little spicier about the name in those spaces. And then in the other spaces where mm. they didn't really care, they would just like let people do whatever they wanted. And so for reasons that I could go on and on about, but aren't really that relevant, they decided that RustConf was a spot where like they, they didn't want to compete. They wanted everyone to just do that event. Um, and if you were going to do other events, you had to make them like feel significantly different. Um, and I bring this up only because I think it's really relevant when you think about some of the folks that were working on the trademark policy and what their threat models are. Um, mm, yeah. Because, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of people doing very different, interesting Rust implementations. And there are members of the project that have, like, you know, incentive to, like, dissuade people from doing that and have people do that from within the project instead of outside it. Um, so anyways. I, I personally think that trademark has a lot to do with project governance. Not everybody believes this. Um, but uh, anyways, the, the policy that, that ended up getting shipped by the foundation, <laughs> I mean, I think, I think it's been litigated pr pretty heavily, but a small summary is that it took the you can't sound like you're officially endorsed to like the nth degree. I think some of the showstoppers were like, you can't have 
a trademark uh, word in your crate name. So no rust, no cargo. All cargo yeah. subcommands are, would be a violation. Um, and it felt like I can almost understand where they're coming from. It's like, well, we want to give you like some guidelines about best practices. And like best practice would be like, don't pick rust, pick RS. You're like, wait a minute. What is that? Why is that a best practice? This is now every rust crate or cargo crate now in violation? Well, I mean, that, that best was- practice has been actually listed in the rust docs. Like, don't name your thing like rust, like for a pretty long time. Um, but that's just because we, there was a desire for like people to use actual words on Crates.io to make Crates.io feel real. Because that rule came up when like Crates.io wasn't really that real and everyone was we were trying to get people to use Rust. And so people, people would be migrating stuff from other languages and so they would call it that thing Rust. And so to look more real, we were like, just call it that thing and use that namespace instead of making it seem like a translation. Um, it wasn't a trademark thing when we originally came up with that rule. <laughs> right, interesting. Well, and I think that part of the danger, though, is that it, it, it's also kind of your, you know, I mean, I like the way you think about the threat model, but when you, it, it seems to be like you're using litigation as a, as a potential enforcement mechanism, which feels very punitive. And I, it, it's going to, I mean, if the objective is to instill fear, like it will, it will work at some level. But of course, uh, fear has got all sorts of other negative ramifications. That, that's, Part of what we saw with the reaction to this oh yeah i think it's a very bad like if what you want is to have more people work together on one thing instead of a lot of people working separately on separate things fear is like not the tool i'd reach for it's not the tool to use no now that said it's like the names of things are really important and adam i want to get you in here because this is something that you've talked about a lot in terms of the names of open source projects and the need to have an identity and a brand. So like, how do you balance this with something that's open source? How do you hit this balance where you kind of preserve name and identity and still have people have the freedom uh, in terms of the way they are able to derive things from it, and name components and so on? Yeah. I mean, uh, it's complicated is the short headline that no one probably needed me to say, but I, I think it, it depends a lot on the project and and its constituency and exactly what it needs to serve. So like, you know, I think the answer is very different for open source companies that build an open source thing, right? And then that thing is their also their company or also their brand. Um and it, in those cases like I'm, I'm very much like a trademark maximalist, you know. Like I think it's better to have a very strong trademark policy in those cases, and actually a pretty liberal copyright policy, right? Um, in that you want people to take the software, you want them to use it for their own ends, you want them to do those things, but you want to ensure that the thing you produce, that is your the output of your business, you know, oxide that that thing only comes from you, because pe- that's how people right. then learn to recognize that you're a producer of a product of worth and quality um i think when you start you, talking you about are uh, you are pro moby in the moby docker <laughs> well no actually i'm anti-moby i think that was a re- but that was uh, but that's because i think it was bad for docker the business not because i'm uh oh, <laughs> not for yeah. any other it's, reason um, so but, weird. but I, yeah but that's about business not about rust i think when you get into the like rust foundation the the question there becomes what is it exactly that we're stewarding and and for whom are we stewarding it? Um, and I think the question of quality still remains in that, you know, if somebody wanted to build, wanted to take the Rust logo and put it up next to something 
horrifically offensive, we want to be able to say, don't do that, right? Like that, that, that that's not appropriate, that the community doesn't support it, that it's not a good thing for you to do. Um, I think in the same way you want to be able to say that there is a Rust compiler that the Rust project builds, and that thing is what Rust is, right? Um, and that like when, if you were to build another one, uh, and you wanted to also call it Rust, but it behaved somewhat differently than the official Rust, is that thing still Rust? And it's a question, it becomes the similar question of quality and of, and of, and of product awareness that says, hey, like, no, it really wouldn't be Rust, right? It would be right. something else. Um, it would be, it is Maria to, this is my sequel, right? Yeah, exactly. Like, you need to be able to say what yeah. that thing is and, and why. Um, and I think the previous policy... Like as an outsider who has been using Rust this whole time, but never and and like likes this sort of stuff like other people like baseball, you know? Like I enjoy watching open source dynamics and like thinking about it and like it's I like I like it. And I like trademark is, lawyers and copyright. Wait a minute, lawyers, like, hold on. Like are, is that just to continue your analogy? Adam, are you and I becoming the John Boy in this analogy <laughs> of if you're yeah. a with what the new trademark uh, yeah, are we are we open source John Boy? That'll be kind of that's intriguing. <laughs> Talk about a um, niche, yeah. What yeah, word are you using there? What a John Boy? <laughs> so all I can think uh, of is like I, I like whatever the show was where they lived on Walton's Mountain, right? Yeah, so John Boy is Brian and my favorite kind of baseball meta commentator. J O M B O Y. We'll we'll link oh, extensively in the notes. Yeah. Which we will leave. We, we will probably leave too much in the notes. Frankly, if you're a baseball fan, the, the, the and so this is actually an and Adam. This is someone who really like takes apart. You know, he'll take apart a particular pitch or an at bat or an inning, and he'll totally. like it, 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 and go like super. I mean, it is truly inside baseball, and it is marvelous. Yeah. So if you're not that, I would like to become that. Like I like right. that. I like that. I like this stuff in the way that you just described that. Right. Um, right. Okay. A hundred percent. And I think. What I find fascinating about this is it feels very representative to me of what has always been true in my estimation of watching the Rust project, which is it's this sort of magical combination of people who are just sort of like getting it done and like working out pretty good together and sort of averse to a whole lot of like strong, heavy handed governance, but then like really need governance. And so then they like build some and then other people are like, no, that was too heavy handed. And then you know, it sort of goes back and forth in this way that I find fascinating to watch because on the one hand, you really like, I'm, I'm so rooting for it, you know, like you really want it to work. And then every time that it starts to get sort of the structure that it needs, you know, like the new trademark policy as a policy has a bunch of flaws, but like in terms of how it's written, it's delightful, right? It uses the like, the like common trademark stuff that like Pamela Chestek wrote. It's like, it's, it's really- The current policy is written by Pamela Chestek. She's the I one. I didn't know I that she was the lawyer. I it when I was the ED of the foundation. And she's, <laughs> so it's she's like, and she's she's like the goods. Like she's yeah. not like pretty good. She's like the fucking best. She's amazing. Um, mm. and and so like there's a lot of those pieces where you're like okay, but what you have to attach to that is you have to know what you want, and you have to know like what it means to your constituency to be able to do one thing or another thing. And you have yeah, to be is, able to ex express that clearly to people. Yeah. And, and I think how that looked to me was that they knew they needed a better trademark policy. 
they had they had like the world's best trademark lawyer telling them like giving them advice which is open source trademark lawyer by the way she's like i think she's also the lead on the osi's license committee like like oh, she's nice. she's a baller and like and what a lovely person by the way like yeah, as a human say, being she's also incredibly reasonable i don't know i so, met her a bunch of times she's, so reasonable. she's not trying to strong arm people into particular policies <laughs> never the thing like, i want to say though and I, I hate to interrupt you adam but i no, feel like do. it needs to be said yeah is <laughs> your characterization of the rust project from the outside is fascinating to hear as somebody who is very deep on the inside oh of course that's why, oh, I, that's, why I was yeah. so, that's why i was so careful to i'm label so it. glad that it's like maintained this, its veneer i know it's because i know it's a i know it's a lie like i know that's right. not what actually happened but like and i've known the whole time that's not what was really happening but it but it is what it looked like was happening most of the time right yeah okay. i agree with that by the way yeah i agree with that Sorry, depending, Ashley, on, depending on where you are in the project, like I think there are people who really knew what they wanted, and then there were a lot of people who had never even reflected on the fact yeah. that they should have an opinion. And because of the fact that power in open source is basically about your ability to spend time, mm -hmm. the people who had already come up with the opinion that they wanted were able to push it forward in a direction that they wanted very quickly. Um, and then that feels very real. Actually, yeah. could you repeat that? Because that is a very <laughs> important observation. The power in an open source project is the ability to spend time. Yeah. People get yeah, really upset with me actually often when I express this. Um, because only because you're telling the truth. Yeah, that is, that is, that's a bullseye right there. So yeah, expand on that a little bit. What do you mean by that? So. I mean, one of the things that we talk a lot about in Rust and I had to reflect um, during my last years in Rust, I had to reflect on why I believe this to be true about open source. But my thought in open source was that part of the open part of open source was that everybody like could potentially contribute and could potentially contribute on like equal footing. And I guess I just like hallucinated that when I discovered open source software. It's like not written down <laughs> anywhere. Um, but that's like kind of just like how I believed things should work. Um, but after working in open source for a long time, I mean, it, this is not a new idea. Like, it's just a rephrasing of tyranny of structurelessness, mostly. Um, but it's the idea that if there is no, like, formal, like, hierarchy of structure, like, then the people who are spending the most time in a, in a project are the people who are able to... I won't say accumulate, because none of this is explicitly, like, granted power, but they are implicitly able to wield an immense amount of it. Totally. Which is not necessarily a negative, right? That can no. be very, very positive. It's just that it's, it is it a depends. truth to be aware of. But now, let's, <laughs> yeah. but now let's draw the circles of what's required in order to build a good trademark policy. So in order to build a great trademark policy, you need a great open source trademark lawyer, of which there are very few in the world. So they found check. one, Pamela Chestick, check. But then you need people working on the policy who both who know how to wield lawyers in order to craft policy to serve a constituency. That is a very weird and niche skill that tends to not show up because you could like program, right? Like we love to believe that we all understand like copyright law and trademark stuff. And like <laughs> I feel like I I feel like I do as well as as well as a layperson as well as most lay people can. 
like I really have spent a lot of time in my life trying to really understand it to the degree that now I'm like a fan person of Pamela Chestick because I read her writing because I'm nerdy about how good she is at it, right? But like, right. But, but I still can't. You're a fan. You're not in the arena. Ultimately, yeah, you I'm a fan. Spend three years of I'm, law school to figure I'm, it out, right? I'm not. I'm not a lawyer. <laughs> I didn't do the thing, but I. But I'm. But I'm as deep. But I've made some mistakes. I've like got the scars. I've talked to a lot of lawyers, not just one. And like those people are really quite rare. And 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 so when you take that and you and you put it into even the best open source lawyer, I think it's un. It's it's unsurprising that what they wound up with was a policy that went overboard on on the things they thought were really important, sort of to Ashley's point that like, you know, if you're spending a lot of time and you already have a point of view about what should, how something should be or how it should happen. And then a lawyer tells you, well, here's this structure that you could use to get to enforce that thing. Does that matter? And you're like, yes, that's the most important thing. Write me a policy that says that. And they do. And it's ironclad. And then you show right. it to people and they're like, Oh, get the fuck out of here with that. You know? Yeah. Um, because you don't really understand how to wield the tools at hand, you know. Like when you, it, it's your point, you've lost track of the constituency. I, mean, I think that is a very, well, very important point. Or you have a particular part part of the constituency in mind. Right? Yeah, like, it, yeah. It's, not, it's not saying you lost track. One must the constituency. deliberate. Yeah, sometimes it's <laughs> deliberate. I'm not saying it's an accident. Like, like in, and this is one of the things that I, in this conversation outside this room, like Ashley's the best person to follow on this conversation because she's got so much of the inside track. And then she's also great at these topics philosophically and structurally and intellectually. And like, cause it is, it's just, it's so complicated. Um, and I'm also a fan of this type of stuff, just like you are. That's why I totally. like, you know, in writing bylaws for the foundation, the Rust Foundation was one of like my favorite activities. Yeah. <laughs> And like, right? It's wow, so great! Well, right? I love that shit too. And like, yeah. anyway, I I really do think that that it's it's then compounded by the way that they decided to roll it out, and the way that they communicated it, and then the way they didn't respond. Like, there's a whole other angle here that's just on like, let's talk about crisis comms and crisis like, comms, right? And how like, like oh, there's yeah. a lot here. Your clarification has made it worse. Yeah, well, and honestly, the say, fact made it worse. Oh, you know, like, so like, like the document, the actual policy document was nowhere close to as harmful as the fact was in terms of how people felt about the policy. And like, I think the, yeah, so it, it, some of it, I think is, and I think Steve was going to say this, so whether he says it again or not, <laughs> like, I, I do think that there is a thing about, there's losing track of the whole constituency. So what is the entire community that I serve? And it's really easy to wind up believing that the community you can see or the people who are in the room are the constituency. And so I'll, I'll talk about this in a, my own experience. Like, do you remember when uh, everyone was very angry that people had contracts with immigration and customs enforcement? Well, so, sure. so Jeff like had a very, so yeah. we had a very long standing relationship right. with immigration and customs enforcement, far predated people being upset about it doesn't right or I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm just telling you that's what happened. So the, um, you know, when you're sitting in rooms talking about whether that policy, whether we should still have that contract, one of the things that you could really see people do was they think about the constituency of the people in the room. They think about, you know, people who are your boss or who are your peers or what the impacts are sort of in your sphere. Um, 
and you and you tend to then look at the policy as protection um for your point of view so you look at it and you say well you know we can't craft a policy that says that it that we should not sell to the government therefore we must keep this contract <laughs> which is not true right that's a crazy right. point of view but it's <clears throat> it's not crazy it's the kind of thing you talk yourself into when you believe that what you're looking to are hard and fast rules that explain what's right and what's wrong and that's not really the game we're playing most of the time <laughs> right we're making we're making dis- we're, we're making decisions about what we think should or shouldn't happen or why we think something is right or wrong and so like to bring it back to the trademark issue i also think that there was probably some degree of people just looking around the room and going, well, yeah, this is, we all agree this is right. Therefore, the constituency has been served. Do you know what I mean? Well, I, one of the things I want to put like a, as a note on that is I think one of the things that I learned the absolutely most painful way possible is that in open source, just completely pissing off your community has a lot less ramifications than that community wants to believe a hundred percent um and i i would say like the the way you're phrasing the point is kind of like they've lost track of it and they should return like the incentive structures for not pissing off your community in many of these foundations like don't really exist and like when i was writing the bylaws for the rust foundation one of the things i did was i like made a majority vote of project directors like be part of the voting so that the project definitely had a voice and that's like unusual and unique for open source foundations what i didn't anticipate and now i'm kind of like regretting when i think about like how those bylaws were set up is I felt sure that the feedback loop between the project and the community would stay strong. And like, that is just such an obvious slippage that's happened. That's kind of come out of this experience and the incentive structures for recentering the project on the community don't really exist. Yes. And I mean, we did this with chef, right? So we had an open source project. It was called chef. Tons of people contributed to it. They never owned Chef. I owned Chef. I owned the trademark to Chef. And then we used it to change our business model. And it made people very angry. And also, it made us a bunch of money. You know? And I, and I don't feel all that bad about it. And, like, <laughs> um, I feel bad that I hurt people's feelings. I feel bad I didn't set it up the way I wanted it to. But also, I still did it, and I don't regret it. I'd do it again. Um, Interesting. And, and, like, the incentives to do it, I think that opinion, like the way you just shared that, like, again, I was not in this room, but I'm certain that there are people that feel that way that were behind a lot of this policy. Yeah. And like, I think in this particular instance, that's, they're making a mistake, (laughs) right? I think, I think, I think the, the, the people that they're serving and what they're, and, and what they need from it are not aligned in the way that like the people chef was serving, like were, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, And I think. To go back to actually something you said about like you know there, there there are limited consequences to pissing off your community. I I think that depends. I I think that you there, um you know that you got the uh, the returning uh, the the the, uh, the the bullet holes on the returning bomber kind of uh, image that the because there are communities. I mean it, it depends on what that misbehavior is. I mean so thinking in particular about for example Hudson at uh, I mean now which we oh. now call. Jenkins, right? Where it's like that actually did 
now the community was was happy to be completely free of then Oracle, but it's like mm-hmm. absolutely lost the community in a way that was irredeemable. And I feel like there are things you can do, and I think it really depends on to what degree does the does the community. Well, the one in the community doesn't speak with one voice, but to to what degree is there? Yeah, a, I was going to say one thing that Florian Gilcher, who I wish was here because he's great on this topic as well. But I would share he he always gets pretty spicy if anyone says the Rust community. He always right. says the Rust communities because it it is not a single voice, and you always mm-hmm. do yourself a disservice by speaking about it as if it's a a single thing. Well, that's right. And I think the real question is, because this is, and and Steve, when we we were talking about doing this at an Oxide and Friends, I was likening this to uh, when I was asked to give a keynote at the Node Summit after, long after, Joint had had broken up with Node effectively. This is in 2017, Ashley. And I'm like, no, because I don't have nice things to say about Node. And the like, I just don't think it could be productive. And the organizers of the summit is like, oh my God, that'd be amazing. You have to now get, I was like, oh my God. But it did actually, that is where my software's reflection of value talk came from because it did force me to really think about, wait a minute, what did go wrong here? And I think what went wrong in that situation was, the, and the reason that, that there was such a great fracture is because there were actually different values at work. And you've got, yes, you can have, you've got different communities and different constituencies, but if you don't have shared values, mm-hmm. then the fracture can become really deep. And then I think you do end up with these these communities that kind of forever. Um, and so I, and I think that, that this is, I think, part of what people felt. Uh, this is and, why... I, yeah. well uh, the thing i want to say is like you're talking about this fracture and this is like when a fracture happens like i think it's worth kind of zooming out from this trademark policy little situation and going what else has been happening in rust like Mm -hmm. around this time that may have led to like a massive value split (laughs) um and i do think it's worth noting that like a lot of leadership in rust has either left or has transitioned to working for like basically a fang company, um, and that the Wait, are we are we a fang company in this metaphor? Rust governance <laughs> has changed pretty dramatically, um, and so like I think I think you can see this stuff happening, and I think one of the biggest problems and one of the biggest challenges with community management is that a lot of these changes happen on such a slow feedback cycle; it's often hard to see them happening. <laughs> Interesting, and that you that there's kind of an erosion that is happening that is that can be hard to see until it's too late, effectively. Right. I mean, one of the things I would point out, and so, this was something that I was pushing for when I was still in Rust governance and made everybody really spicy, was um, there should be a limit of like team membership of people who all come from individual companies or something, mm-hmm. and that was something that Rust doesn't do. Um, if you look at the project directors and who they're employed by, um, they're not independent. <laughs> um, so it's, it, I, think it, I think it's very interesting. And so when we talk about the community and what community, what set of constituencies do folks have in mind like while they're setting up these policies? Like, I don't, I'm not trying to say it's like necessarily an explicit like evil takeover scenario, but I think you're right, like Adam, when you say like who's in the room matters because totally. they, they become your feedback loop well and this becomes like not all foundations are created equal so like it, and not all project leadership teams are created equal and so 
when we think about like one of the concerns I have, and I've been said publicly, and if there are somebody in the room who's upset about it, I'm so sorry. Like the way the Linux Foundation works as essentially a giant for-profit entity that just creates baby foundations to also be for-profit entities that essentially just become giant industry consortiums that serve only the consortium members as You're like among a friends, play Adam. mechanism. <laughs> like, Let's wait for the sentence to end. I don't know where he's going to end on this one. Yes? How is like, the sentence going to end? That's, that's not my kind of party. Oh, and I look there we go. I look at those kinds of foundations and I look at their governance and I look at who they serve and I think it's gross. I think it's yes. yucky. I think, I think it causes... Like you look at like what cloud native is, right? And like it's the foundation building a marketing. Wait, you term. know what cloud native is? I still don't. Oh, yeah, it's whatever the CNCF says it is because the cabal decided that that's what was best for their joint marketing efforts against Amazon. And like God bless them, they uh, they're all they're all making money. And like and also, ugh, you know. And and so I kind of think when I look <sighs> at foundations and open source, I tend to look also at the structure of. You know, if you're one of the things like the Apache Foundation does well, they don't do everything well, but one thing they do do well is the distinction that says, like, who exactly is it that we're even allowed yeah. to serve? <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. Like, like, we know, like, we're very clear about who we serve, and we're very clear that they're the only people, that that's the only way that we serve it. And if anything else is being served, then that's a failure of the foundation's governance of their own projects. Oh and, my god, you're gonna get me so spicy right now. <laughs> and like, I think that that question of like, well, okay, who's this thing for? Like, is it is it a programming language that is sort of weaponized for the corporate interests that need it to be weaponized in some particular way? Is it the is it is it for the people who program in it? Is it for the people, the language designers who build it? Like, it's for all of those people to some degree. But in what way does does like a trademark policy, for example, be be of service to those people and oh. like this I, is the quote i wish the register had given me because this is like something i explicitly said to him and like one of the things that was really important to me setting up the rust foundation is like the rust foundation is not this marketing flywheel that the linux foundation is totally it's for supporting the maintainers and when you ask you have to ask yourself like how is this trademark policy supporting the maintainers. Um, Amen. And I think, yeah. But I think it goes back to the fact, and this is why, like, everyone's going, like, oops, this was a mistake now, and, like, I don't necessarily disagree, but I think that there are many folks who are maintainers on the Rust project who would like to reduce the threat of competition on the language design side. And the way the language team has played with the ecosystem has been plagued with with so much conflict in Rust that I think when it came to be that the trademark policy was going to be discussed, there was a desire to try and limit some of that, like, using this policy. That's nuts. Yeah, I think it's nuts now. People are going to be like, that's a conspiracy theory. Actually, like, you have no reason to know that. But I do know <laughs> that people on the trademark working group literally troll alternate implementations on GitHub, like, pretty regularly. That's all public. Um, I've got the crazy board with all the things strung through it, if you need Oh, with the, like, with the string yeah. and everything? Yeah. But I mean, yeah. if you look at the, the whole async I, thing that went down yeah. in Rust, that was a oh. massive conflict, it was extremely public, and it was all about this question, which I really think this trademark policy should be about, 
which is like, what does Rust want to make official versus yeah. not? And this is something that has been a vicious debate amongst leaders in Rust for years. Like we will literally feel it coming on and be like, we can't have the what is official conversation right now. Like, <laughs> mm -hmm. Can you expand but, on the async kerfuffle, at least briefly? Um, so when there, when Rust first came out, there were no asynchronous networking primitives and like many things in Rust, because it was missing from the language itself, there was experimentation in the ecosystem and there was, uh, a desire at some point to be like, like, I think I was like, node has the thing where you can write a server in eight lines. Like, I really think if Rust wants to be like a server, like network language like we should have this demo too um they're like okay then we need async primitives in the language and there was a lot of conflict about whether we adopt something from the ecosystem or we invent something from whole cloth from within people who were within the project governance and people who were in the ecosystem had a big old battle about it honestly there's bad blood to this day okay. um and that's why if you go, oh, which async runtime should I use in Rust? And you find like a whole bunch of different crates and some of them work with each other and some of them don't, like that's why. <laughs> nice. I, 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 the asynchronous execution also just does seem to bring out, this is also, I mean, I'm not sure if it, because this is- It's true. Here. I don't know, what is it about like this particular property know. of a system that is just like, it like instant civil war, just like just add people <laughs> and you have instant civil war over how we're gonna it's like all right um the i do want to someone had asked in the chat like hey i'm not at the loop on the linux foundation like what is going on with the linux foundation so the, the linux foundation is a 501c6 that is an effectively an industrial consortium and a, a lot of us in open source think it's pretty dirty the way it operates um and in particular it ends up being an octopus whose only job is to feed itself and they end up uh it guides a lot of their actions in terms of who their constituency is their constituency is their member companies, but and it's even worse than that because they don't they they really seem to operate in kind of a very narrow self interest. So, and actually, I, I think we have. I'm sure there are, are others to thank as well, but I think the Rust community has you to thank for uh, for Rust not being a quote unquote foundation in the Linux Foundation because Linux Foundation likes Thankfully. to create oh, these yeah, quote unquote foundations. Here's the trick though. So like one of the big things when I set up the Rust Foundation and admittedly in a group that didn't always agree, there was pretty much, a, there was a lot of agreement that we shouldn't incorporate under the Linux Foundation um, because of the whole like, I, the way I like to talk about the Linux Foundation is it used to advertise itself as, as companies should adopt open source because the ROI is like 100% because it's free. Um, and then they just sell advertising for that so that they can get more sponsorships to buy more marketing and advertising. Um, and it's just a big, big event machine. Uh, but I mean, the Rust Foundation is still a 501c6. Like the Linux Foundation has become so massive that you have to be really careful with your weirdness budget about how strange you can make your foundation because getting getting these large, massive companies and their massive, very finicky legal teams 
to like agree to your terms is extremely complicated. And so clear, you the Linux Foundation's problem is not that it's a C6. The Linux Foundation's problem is that it has decided that its growth path is to grow open source foundations is its problem, I think. Well, in, yeah, I mean, absolutely. what? They literally want to be a monopoly. Like they've said yeah. that. And also nonprofits can be a monopoly. There's a lot of very, anyways, I could, that's my little conspiracy theory. Yeah, that they're I'm essentially, like, I don't think that's a conspiracy theory. I think that's very clear. I, I mean, Look, Jim Zemlin's not here or whatever, but if he was, he'd be like, well, yes, I, I do. He already knows just, I'm coming for him. I do believe we could just run all the foundations, uh, and that would be excellent for, yeah, my, exactly. uh, for, my, for my bonus. I think, um, anyway, I probably should throw less shade, but I just, it, it's, it's yucky. I think, I think so much of what, I, what feels like is sort of around this topic of Rust's trademark problem and, and those things, like one of the reasons that we're always going to governance and structure and 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 not talking about trademark law is because so little of it is about trademark law <laughs> like almost almost Absolutely. none of it is about right. what totally. you can or can't do with trademarks and yes i think it especially to loop it back to my own fucking hobby horse like i really do think that one of the problems is that when you start talking it takes a while to be trained on how to talk with lawyers in ways that make you a good client to a lawyer and like one of those ways is being able to say, nope, here's what I would like to see. Talk to me about the risk on whether I can create that thing. And so, right. and, and so one thing I think probably has happened here is like, because I've heard Pamela give this speech about like how trademark law works and she's really good at it and, she's re and she knows so much about it. Um, but then that can lead you to believe that there's things you must do for the mark to, to remain valid. And so you can you can kind of feel like you're in this like weird like trolley problem where it's like well I don't I don't want to make it so nobody can have the Rust name in every crate but if the Rust name is in a bunch of crates then is Rust really a thing at all or is it Kleenex and there's like an it's, existential question there. Trademarks are use it or lose it. I mean, that, that trademarks trademark. are use it or lose it. You have to do it. So I can I can totally sympathize with sitting in a room with a world class trademark lawyer who tells you what this is and goes, yeah, there's a real risk that if I wanted to sue you and say you don't really have a trademark that I could pierce it because there's a bunch of Rust crates that use dash Rust and therefore it's a common term like Kleenex and you got to clean that up. And so then you go, well, great, we better cut that off. You know, got to for the good of the project, we got to make sure that there's no rust crates that have a thing. All very well intentioned, not particularly conspiracy theory, you know, but also not the only way to solve that problem. Like you could solve that same problem by saying we explicitly grant that it's okay to have crate names that use the word rust in it. Not because it's not a trademark, but because it is. And we said it was right. fine. Right. Um, right. Exactly. Yeah. There's and, a lot of ways to be really like creative in a mm -hmm. legal sense, but. I think it takes a really strong personality to talk with a lawyer as like thoughtful and present as Pamela and be like, I hear you, but we need to do it a different way. A hundred percent. Cause you know, you're not an expert. And so you're like, no expert. I'm, we're definitely peers. Like this is the thing that venture capital teaches you. Cause at first you're like, you go and you raise venture capital and you're like, you feel like you're asking rich people for money. And then later you realize that you're peers. And you're like, oh, no, no, that's not how this is working at all. Like, actually, it's funny you learn this from VC, because I think you can also just learn this being an outsider ever. Uh, yeah, I, I think that's real. But like, <laughs> just, yeah, totally. I'm just I was it just happened to be because I was thinking about all the places I learned to be peers with people that are powerful, you know? Yeah, no, that no, it's I mean, I have my own new experiences with VC. And so that totally. was, made me reflect on that. 
Um, I also think that when I was setting up the foundation bylaws, I was sure our lawyer, Aaron, hated my guts. And I'm sure he wouldn't listen to this, but I think he would laugh and be like, no, it's fine. But like, I would just be like, can we can we change this? Can we change this? Can we change this? And Mm -hmm. like, even I was like wondering if I was like being too much, but it ended up being like incredibly important. But you just really have to invest in that. And you also have to want to change it and i do want to return to that like i i don't think that the folks who were involved in this policy were necessarily i think there were folks that were new to doing this type of thing and then i think there were folks that were not and they 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 wanted this and i think maybe they They were thought it was a good idea yeah they were they were they were thinking that they could convince people or they were thinking that maybe people wouldn't notice i want to play global thermal Air war. Uh, Steve, do you want to get? I, I want to get you in here because someone okay. asked in the chat. Of course, that's, that's, why, that's how you start the nuclear war. Is getting me involved? Yeah, exactly. So, Steve, as part of starting global nuclear war, I, I turn now to yeah. you. Um, and the um, yeah, I'd like to roll you out to the pad and send you the launch codes for explaining um, wh- why does does Russ need a foundation? I, I, do open source projects need foundations? Why is is there a reason for them to exist beyond just uh, preventing kind of trademark trolls from taking over the branding? Yeah, so like there's definitely a lot of really good things, and uh, there's a good reasons that this all was made in the first place. And I don't think every project needs something like this, but it's eventually as you grow, you will end up so. Like I think all projects of a certain size eventually run into these issues. So one example is like. As uh, was sort of said in the chat, like it gives you a legal entity at all. Like on some level, talking about the Rust project is like nonsense because that's like not a thing that exists in a legal context. And therefore, anything where you need to interface with something about legal stuff, <laughs> like yeah, like contracts or like one one great example is like Rust will never really like be able to be relicensed because we didn't have a legal entity for anyone to even sign. Like say we had a CLA where people would sign up their contributions and assign their copyright to something. You need a something to assign that copyright to. And so before the foundation existed, it was literally like impossible for us to do that. I'm not saying it's a thing I wanted or a thing the foundation wants to do feature. now, but just That's like a feature. You said you said you said thermonuclear war, so I'm picking spicy right. examples. But like the go. point is just like if you need to pay someone something, like would you yeah, like to hire a freelancer to do something on your website? Now you're talking about contracts, now you're talking about bank accounts, now you're talking about money. And the only way you can really do that is if you have some sort of legal entity that is able to handle money and deal with contracts and do all that kind of stuff. And so it just it pops up in tons of places. We were the Rust project was receiving kind of like in-kind donations for things like CI for a really long time. And it's like really cool that those giant companies were like willing to do that. But also that stuff is harder because it's no longer the like, you know, like companies have ways of giving money to things, right? And usually that's like, we write a check somewhere and not like, oh yeah, we'll like write off your this one account for this one thing or like that kind of stuff. Like it's all just like more, the, the norm, the easy path is have a legal entity do legal stuff. And the only way that you have that is by having some sort of organization it doesn't have to be a nonprofit uh, and you know, all that other stuff. But um, like the Rust Foundation has more to do than just this trademark stuff. And a lot of those things are things that are like not uh, super sexy or things that people know about, but like still are actually important. 
but I think Ashley raised the point in the chat that it is it is really hard for foundations to be good. I mean, it is it is tough because the the Steve, I don't disagree with anything you said. Uh, I do think it's a tremendous feature when open source can't be relicensed, uh, in part because it, it it actually prevents a hostile takeover effectively of a project. Um, it so it. I think that the <laughs> <laughs> well, it certainly gives you a recourse. Um, it, it gives you a recourse. It gives you, an, and ultimately, I mean, you have a recourse. I mean, we obviously saw this when uh, what was Open Solaris was reproprietorized by Oracle, basically, and uh, it was effectively became, it was forked. So, it, yeah, you you do oh you always have a, a recourse. I do think that you with the foundation though becomes this consolidation of of kind of apparent power that's not actual power and i think that especially if you try to wield that you will find the 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 limits of that power and you will end up with a project called crab or one called jode.ns or what you mean ultimately like you you have to guide the community the communities with mutual trust at some level and if a foundation violates that trust i think it's really really hard i don't know i mean it, 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 actually is that when, when you're describing it's really good for a foundation to be good is is, is that what you, you the well, kinds of things you were referring to i mean in some ways yes like i so one of the things that i said a lot when i was setting up the foundation and like i think a lot of people on the core team once we started kind of seeing a lot of what a foundation could do for us, we were like, oh my gosh, we should have done this a really long time ago. But also, it's like much better to do your foundation late than to do it too early. And I do think it has to do a lot with this. I think you have to be careful. Like you said apparent power, but the power of the foundation and the folks that work there is very real. Um, and... Yeah. Like, so, it, like, you kind of make up because, power because... out of nowhere. Um, and I think the the way foundations go sideways is the same way, like, any company goes sideways or really any group of people. And it goes back to this idea about a divergence of values, I think, is that, like, you need to have a vision and you need to, like, communicate that and, like, rally people around it. And I think the Rust Foundation has done an absolutely shit job of that since we kicked it off. I think its idea of supporting the maintainers and like how are we going to actually solve open source sustainability instead of like micro donations and stuff, like that it's just gone. And I, it, I have to be careful how loud I say this because I'm obviously incredibly biased. But one of the things that we talked about a lot as part of the Rust core team, and I think it's something that the foundation would also need to do, is that if you want to have this group, this passionate community all work together in like a seeking consensus decision making way, like you have to be leading and not reacting. <laughs> uh, and you have to be leading with something that's very strong and like emotionally attractive. And when you drop that on the ground, like now you're like this is the losing of the trust like i think yeah. it happens even before that where like if people stop following you and start going in different directions like hurting them back together in a reactionary way instead of a proactive way is it's not gonna work 
Well, you, um, you have to be leading with the truth. You know, like in terms of like what what I mean is, you need to be leading with the, the community's broader truth. If you are trying to impose something upon the community or or the communities, lead them in a direction that they in fact don't want to go, or only a subset of them want to go, then you're actually just going to expose this deeper value and fracture the, 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 this deeper fracture of values. There's a really good point in the chat made about, and just agreeing with your point, Ashley, about it is better to err on the side of creating a foundation too late than too early, which I absolutely agree with. Yeah. But I like the point of like, hey, this is a bit like standardization in that you want a foundation to, to reflect the best practices that have grown up in a community rather than trying to impose that on a community or communities that aren't actually ready for it. Well, I guess I would push back on best practices just because in my experience of communities, like they like don't have best practices. Like they have a shared problem and like a shared vision of how they want to solve it. And I think when you're leading a group of people, like reiterating what problem you're solving and how you're making meaningful change on that is like really, really, really important. And the fact that we relitigate, like, what is the Rust Foundation and why does it matter every time it does anything, I think fundamentally means that they've just, like, lost the, like, mindshare of the vision of what they're supposed to be doing. And so, like, that that would be, like, my, like, critique of what's going on is, like, they can make any number of mistakes if, like, their purpose is obvious yeah. and it's a yeah. it's a purpose that people want like focusing on the like the rust project is way too big we have so many things that we want to do we we need support for that and we want to support the ability for both corporate contributors but also independent contributors to be able to like meaningfully participate in this like once they lost the thread of like what is the point of this like people are going to get grumpy at almost everything <laughs> totally um, this is just to adam's point about like hey by the way it's not actually about the actual trademarks it's always that mm -hmm. there is a broader and deeper issue that is represented there and when you've lost that that mutual trust then yeah people are going to go into your fact and they are in this case like the fact really kind of helped them out any kind of conspiracy theorist was aided greatly by the fact mm -hmm. um which was particularly um egregious with kind of exacerbating the this trust problem do you think actually that there that folks realize because i do feel like it's interesting the, the the update today is much more conciliatory than what we saw in the uh the kind of the clarification which was actually made things quite a bit worse do, do, do you feel that 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 folks may be getting to realize that there is a a trust problem and that, that maybe a different approach is warranted here i mean i don't know i'm not in their heads and like trying to figure out exactly what's in other people's heads is always like a really dangerous game um i do think that they watched the project's message go over very poorly and so they at least decided to do something slightly different i continue to not be super impressed because they keep dragging along this line of it being an initial draft even though their minutes for the last three months have stated it as a final draft going to the board for vote um so i don't know i'm worried i i think i've seen both groups be extremely defensive decide that the community response is really just like abusive um, 
And like, Defensiveness I, I, is personally, out of control. I personally think that there's a chance that this makes them become like more insular instead of more open. Yeah. And oh, I, interesting. we were having that is like actively happening in the comments. Yeah. Like if you read the tone of the Reddit thread over time, like you just see the people involved, both in the project and the foundation pull back, lump in all criticism with the don't, as I sort of tweeted at one point, like, don't get me wrong. Like there is a ton of abuse in Google forms. Like when you ask people to reply with things, like they will put all kinds of hot garbage in there. So it does not surprise me that there is like legitimate abuse and actual terrible, yeah, legitimately abuse. What I mean, not legitimate to be <laughs> legitimately abuse, not legitimate abuse. Uh, to put a little maybe missing a syllable there, but like the point is, is like that though. And also this perceived like, whipping up by outsiders like there's clearly a narrative forming that like anyone who is critical is either like abusive or abusive adjacent or like does not actually represent like the rust project because they're just some popular twitch streamer they're not like a person who actually uses rust uh and that's like i that is my fear i i don't actually I'm not entirely sure this will be resolved in a good way. Uh, I, I think it may actually be going even worse, uh, but we'll, we'll just have to so see. One, one thing that I feel like it's worth saying, because it's also coming up in the chat, and I, I don't know how much insider baseball this is, whether I should be saying this quiet part out loud or not, but like there was, when I was the original ED, I was told that the foundation wanted to go in a different direction. And the desire to hire the next ED was to specifically hire someone from outside of the project. And oh, the rest okay. of the hiring for the foundation was very much focused on folks that had literally basically no participation, awareness of the community at all. That was something that the board did on purpose. Uh, um, I think it was a big mistake. I obviously am biased, but... I, when people are talking about we're seeing the foundation be very different than the community, I think it's also worth noting that there was probably like there was an issue about if we hire folks from the community because there's a history there, some people like those people and some people don't like those people, and so we won't make everyone happy. And so if we hire somebody who's an outsider, then we are, we won't be seen as picking sides. Yeah. Um, but unfortunately, that meant the shedding of a lot of context that is incredibly important for being able to communicate uh, in the community and communities. Um, and so I, I do think that that is one of the biggest issues. And I hope that there's seen as that there's a need for fixing that. Um, because I also feel kind of terribly for the staff of that foundation who just feels like probably from the get-go, everybody was mad at them all the time. Um, I don't think they were set up to succeed. And that's on the board. Yeah, that it, I, I think especially in Rust, ha I mean, it is really, it, it, to, to, you need to have context on it. Um, because I do think that like what I love about Rust, I, I would want to echo what Adam said. And I know that, that, you know, that, that you and actually you and Steve have inside of this sausage delivering the delicious, delicious sausage. And you've seen horrific, horrific things required to deliver the delicious sausage. But the sausage really is quite tasty in that. It's the, so the, yummy. 
It is so yummy. And it, it, there needs it, to be a vegan metaphor for this. <laughs> it could be vegan I, sausage. It's still I, complicated yeah, to make. It's maybe even more complicated it's to make. It's a lot less disgusting. <laughs> you got to make fake sauce. Like, like, it's legit. Or like faux crab. So it's not real. <laughs> right. But I, I think that the that you know there have been some it, there have been some real challenges, but I do feel that as a community, it is strongly bound by its values, its engineering values in particular. It's there are technical values to Rust that are really important, that are hard to appreciate as someone who's not going to pick up the language or pick up a crate or use be a part of the ecosystem or use. I mean. It's, it is very hard to come into it as a complete outsider. I just think it'd be hard for anybody. I think it'd be hard to for any outsider to come in. I mean, I think it's possible, but I think you've got to be overwhelmed with curiosity and be willing to really go deep and kind of and 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 live among the communities to really appreciate the, the what is kind of what values bind them and. I think that is that is problematic. It, it is really problematic to have a a foundation that does not reflect its community. Because Adam, it goes back to your initial point. It's like who is the is the constituency, and if you yourself yeah. are not in that constituency, and this is part of the reason not to kind of cross the streams here, but as part of the reason that I I have always believed that I will, regardless of my position in an organization, I will always cut code because you need it. If you if you don't cut code in a software engineering organization, I think it's very easy to lose track of what software engineers are going through. And I think that totally. it's, it is, it's very easy to lose that empathy. And I, I feel that, yeah, it's really important that a foundation understand who that constituency is. And actually, it's obviously, the, the foundation, foundation is the all, whole thing. It's the, yeah, it's right. the entire right. governance structure of the project. Like the foundation's one part, but like we see this all the time. You're seeing it like, like the Nix community right now is having its own like little paroxysms of governance crisis, right? Because there really hasn't been really much of any governance at all. And, and that lack of clarity about how decisions get made means that when we do have conflict and we need to come to a resolution, there isn't really a path of resolution. There really isn't a mechanism to do it. And, and so when you think about like, you know, if the community in the broad dislikes this trademark policy, what is their recourse? And I know that there is some because because they're the foundation, you know, can I think has has some checks, but there's no formal recourse for community members to well, yeah, do anything the in the project or foundation, both just to be clear about it. There you go. So so like all of those things come back to governance structures. They come back to questions of like, you know, and, and there's trade offs to be made. It's not like there's one correct structure that's like, oh, obviously what we should do is X or Y, right? Like like you can go all the way to Debian and it has its own crazy mess and you can go, you know, you can have none at all. And that's its own crazy mess. And like, it's sort of a crazy mess, no matter how you choose. Cause you've, cause you are building big communities that are, that have lots of people who need and want whatever it is they need and want. They want jobs, they want notoriety, they want, um, they want whatever they want. Um, and part of the art of community management and of governance design and of foundation design and policy and all that stuff is setting up the rules that say that, okay, we all want different things. How are we going to make it so at the very least, the system we've set up is a fair and just one. And, and, you know, that's hard to do. And it like, it's, it's messy. Ashley and Steve and Adam, what do you think are the, is the way out from here? Like, what, what do you think happens next? Because you're describing this divergence between the folks responsible for the foundation 
and the communities they serve? You know, is, is there a way out of the wilderness? I mean, I think it depends, like, for who. Yep. Uh, like, I mean, this isn't going to, like, kill Rust or anything. I think that would be really silly to say. But, I, I mean, there's also these uh, this idea of, like, an age of a project and the different stages. I'll also share, since it's the second time happening on Oxide and Friends, we've missed dog dinner. And so if you hear the crying behind <laughs> me, it is the puppy. She's pissed. Um, but, like, when we think about Rust, like, I think Rust has to decide, like, what what it wants its constituency to be and who it's building for. Um, Rust the foundation or Rust the the project? So in many ways, this we love to talk about there being this split, right? (laughs) And sure, in in the technical governance side of things, like there there is a split. But the community can't understand a ton of subtlety. Right? Like, the, you have to talk in kind of wide strokes. And, like, continuing to insist on, like, well, there's the Rust Foundation and its idea about Rust, and then there's the Rust Project and its idea about Rust. That is not going to be, like, a successful long-term messaging campaign. They're going to have to figure out a coherent message together. And I think that that is going to be very interesting. And I'm curious to see how it negotiates, like, the relationship between maintainers and what would otherwise be called the community, maybe end users would be the right way to talk about it. I mean, I know this uh, is going to be the a ecosystem. useful... ecosystem. Yeah. Uh, I know from the minutes they're talking about starting to adopt other projects into the foundation, uh, which is going to be very interesting and complicated. Okay, so what would that mean? What kind of projects? Like like a crate, maybe? Like, whew, they're going to be make. I don't know. It's it's an interesting thing. In many ways, I think it's a great idea because so many parts of the ecosystem are so critical and need support. On the other hand, picking winners, because that's what this does, is really complicated. Especially because you know the only crate that is in my mind is like straight to the Civil War topic. I I don't know that that's the right that that's the one we're talking about, but in my head I'm like, oh, the async crates are the obvious choice to pick a winner in. I like, um, I you know I, I don't think it's necessarily the most applicable choice, but to be honest, like they could probably do a whole lot worse than listening to Ashley. And like, you know, if you think about what all of the complexity of what's inside here in terms of the history of the project in terms of caring about who those people are and 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 being empathetic to all of the different players and all of the complexity that exists inside their that ecosystem like that is the way out of this right is to like put down your defenses put down the part of you that feels that it's unjust that you're being unfairly maligned by the people who are being shitbirds because there are people who are being shitbirds and you are being unfairly maligned by them. And also there, you don't need to care about those people. You need to care more broadly about all the people who have legitimate concerns that are, that are real and they're, they're sharing them with you in a legitimate way. They're giving you a path to, to, to listen and to understand more about how to serve them. Um, and then, you know, reiterate your point of view about the future and how it helps and like how and how to serve those people better and like that's the way out and you know 
I've, I've been watching a lot of this conversation and like, you know, Ashley's doing that very well and very articulately kind of all the time. So, you know, whether they'll do, I don't think they will. Like, I think the advice to the foundation being listened to Ashley is a difficult, that's probably difficult advice for them to take. <laughs> But I think yeah, it's true. I, I don't think that's going to happen. As I it's have... not because you're, but it's not because you're wrong, Ashley. It's not because you're giving them the wrong advice. You're giving them the exact right advice, and yeah, you know, I, I they, need to, they can it. wash it through the podcast. They can wash it through, like whatever. I'll, I'll, I'll like build a little sock puppet, and you can just put it in my ear, and I'll say whatever you tell me to say. But like, I like, you're talking very sensible, very sensical things. Well, I think that's exactly it. I think if it hurts too much to listen to Ashley, then just listen to what Ashley is saying. Um, and right. I, I, forget and about I, who's saying it. Yeah, and I think Adam, it also gets again that that or that the constituency really, really matters. And I and I know it's tempting to to have that, that that. And I've been in the rooms where you have that kind of shared feeling of grievance, but totally. that that and I, I understand exactly where it's coming from. And I think what you're describing is exactly right. It's hard to let go of that shared feeling of grievance. Mm -hmm. But it, 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 if you want to understand and be able to truly represent the community, recognize that, first of all, the trademark issue is a, it, it is symptomatic of a deeper fracture, not necessarily, hopefully not around values, although maybe that too, but certainly around trust and constituency. And you, the, you, it's now incumbent to really figure out how do you do, represent that constituency and win that trust back? Um, and just listen to this sock puppet that Adam has over here that has that happens to look a lot like Ashley. That is describing. No, I'll make it. Like I'll make. I'll make it look nothing like Ashley, and then we'll That's do right. like I'll call her up or whatever, and she'll just tell me what to say, you know. And I'll just be like, burp, 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 burp. it'll be great. I I really feel like I need to state that like I don't think a lot of what I'm saying is particularly like unique. No, um, I don't think but it is articulate and deeply informed by the that. truth. Um, but like, I, I think one of the things that the project has struggled with, and if you take a look at some of the inside Rust blog posts about how governance is currently being reformed, I think one of the things that leads me to feel concerned about the reform that they are doing is that they really have not been creating space at the project level for people who are good at this type of communication and who care about this type of work. I'll, I'll be honest, like I got really excited about this type of work and I spent a lot of time doing it and I spent a lot less time like standing up infra for Crates.io and then I was told I was kind of like irrelevant and didn't really contribute to the project. Um, and so unfortunately, like the you don't code so you don't count like in many ways strikes again and the Rust project is not likely to listen to me at all, but I do think one of the things that they should try and figure out is how they can get their bench a little stronger on certain skills that were clearly lacking in this situation. And I hope that they are able to work on that. <laughs> well, the bench stronger, then you've got to listen to the bench too. I think that the other, because I, 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 and I have got to say, I'm certainly wondering it in this case is you can have a small number of personalities that can win a room. And there are folks who are like, you know, I actually wasn't totally comfortable with what we were doing, but there was kind of a consensus to move along with it. It's like, well, you're actually, you're in the room to represent that point of view. And even if that's going to create some uncomfortable lack of consensus, it's like, you got to listen to that bench. Well, um, I, would, I would be really careful with that. And this is like a whole nother chat, Brian, but like, 
Russ's ability to handle internal conflict, especially what has happened <laughs> over the last couple of years, has had a massive chilling effect on people's like ability to engage in negative ways. And I personally yeah. will say that many of the folks who were that dissenting voice after some of the things that have gone down, like chose to leave the project, then stay and be the dissenting voice. And that's a big culture problem inside Rust governance right now. And that is a big challenge. That is a big challenge. When you when people are because those those folks will walk out of the room. They'll be like, all right, forget it. I and but the problem is now you're losing that voice that ends up being a potentially a really important voice that by the way would have talked you out of potentially would have represented a descending voice yeah. when you're on the cusp of making kind of a a, a a policy own goal here with respect to the trademark policy. I think a lot of those voices absolutely walked out of the room and you can look at the Rust blog and see who left. Um, and it's a real bummer. And like, I get it. And like, but figuring out how to have constructive conflict inside a project is incredibly important if the goal is to have like open governance and decision making. Totally. And I think that constructive conflict becomes only possible when you do actually have shared values. I still believe that Rust does have shared values because um, our, I certainly, I, the, again, to our earlier point about it kind of being magical from the outside, The um, I have had less I find more and more frequently that things are happening in the community that are delightful than mm -hmm. things that are, are. So I think there's a there's a lot of great stuff to build on here, um, and that that we I I think there's reason to not have fracture, but it's got to be really looked after deliberately, and you've got to actually, as you say, build that bench, get those dissenting voices back in the room, uh, and listen to them. It doesn't feel like a permanent fracture problem to me at all. Like, if this becomes a permanent fracture, it's because there was something so much deeper that people couldn't see or understand. Do you know? Like, I, I, like absolutely. It, it, yeah. feels, it, feels, it feels bonkers to me that, like, if you're actually looking at this particular issue, especially assuming that it gets any, a few steps better toward resolution, like, turning this into any kind of permanent fracture feels like it would just be, you would have to work really hard to make that happen. And, uh... <laughs> And, and perhaps be a really bad actor intentionally. Oh, I think, Adam, just, I guess, maybe to clarify, and Brian, you can tell me if this is right or not, but I think at least what I was trying to express is I think this trademark policy, like, kerfluffle, is like a symptom. Totally. Not, like, the original cause. And I think that it will find a resolution. Mostly because it, it can... It, it is a pretty straightforward thing. Like it is not uncharted territory um, to write an okay open source trademark policy. Yeah, whether it heals the other things that are that are looming that were symptomatic that helped this become a thing that we now have to talk about, you know, is is a different question. Yeah, yeah. But those other things need healing. Just to your point, Adam. So I th I think that there are uh, reason for optimism, but the, it, but we there's work to be done. Um, for sure. And I think that it's, um, th 
this is and i think maybe it's always again i'm just thinking about the number of open source communities that have had these these trademark uh fractures based fractures and maybe the lesson from this is like hey by the way it's never about the trademark it's always about deeper sense uh, of 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 loss of trust loss of agency loss of consistency that there's that if you ever think if you as an open source think you're having a trademark issue it's not about the cap on the toothpaste there's something deeper going on that feels real yeah that's spot on brian well, this has been uh, extraordinary. Um, the, I, I mean, I obviously think so highly of the three of you. I mean, you too, Adam. But you know, um, the, the, uh, the um, but I, I mean, I think that the the three of you are real leaders on this subject. I think that that people really look to you for, a, a, and you've been in a bunch of different communities. You've seen some shit, as as Steve as you'd say. I mean, we and I think that. The, the real strength of Rust historically has been pulling that wisdom from other communities. Um, and I just uh, can't thank you enough for joining us today. This has been a terrific discussion. Well, I was going to say, Brian, just, just for us nerds, though, like, can we have another call where we actually talk about trademark? I feel really bad about it because, yeah, I'm, I'm like a full on trademark maximalist. Like, yeah, I'm I. I don't know where I'm at, and I want to have a conversation with someone about it. So yeah, <laughs> now I have a very strong point of view that I think a lot of what's wrong in the way that we're building open source companies today hinges on the fact that we've over rotated on using copyright to try to create competitive distinction to the detriment of our own communities, and instead, and we do that because we misunderstand the ways we can apply trademarks in order to create the differentiation we want and the communities that we desire in a way that's fair and just. And I think we've been fucking it up for a super long time. So yeah, I'm, right, I'm, cool, down, to, cool. I'm down to stand that's on that soapbox any day. <laughs> great teaser for a sequel, for sure. Yeah, I, I think we got to do a sequel and uh, maybe get some real real trademark lawyers here to join us as well. But yeah, let's yeah, do a sequel. That, 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 that. Oh, get Kyle Unless Mitchell like... in here in Spicy Land. Pamela will do it. Yeah, yeah Pamela will do it. Let's get Pamela here. And, oh, um, Lewis would probably do it too. Oh, totally, he would. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure that he would join if he's not too busy with all his AI stuff now. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's do it. A sequel would be awesome, and I, I, I love it. We'll, we'll go deep, and we'll, uh, we'll, we will be the John Boy for open source communities. Right on. Apparently, that only means something to you and me, Adam. <laughs> well, I was gonna say, someone earlier in the chat said the Matt Stoller for open source, and I kind of liked that too. I don't know if folks read him. Maybe that's just me. I don't know. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, we will. We'll go deep, regardless. All right. Well, hey, everyone, thank you again so much, and uh, we'll we'll look for us to tee up a sequel sometime soon. Um, and uh, thanks again for for joining us today. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Thanks. Bye.